Hear the word of our God. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, To God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. And may it drive us closer to you to behold your glory and to marvel at your grace this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a a tradition in uh, parts of the world, parts that have a a certain monarch, the Commonwealth and Great Britain, of what is called a, a loyal toast. It is loyal toast. I thought it was royal toast because I'm an American and I thought it's about royalty, so it must be called the royal toast. And... And then I discovered it's called the loyal toast because it's not about your monarch. It's about being loyal to your monarch. Uh, But I I feel a little better about having it wrong because then Karen asked me, is it really loyal toast? And then my daughter asked me, isn't it royal toast? And so here we are, but it's loyal toast. And uh, this toast is supposed to be given at every formal gathering in Great Britain and in the Commonwealth. At the end of a meal, the host will stand and say something like, uh, Dear friends or or ladies and gentlemen, will you stand with me and raise your glass for the toast? And then the toast is simply the queen. It's not the queen anymore, is it? It's the king for them now. But but for all of our lifetimes until this this fall, it was the queen. And uh, at least I don't think any of you are old enough. I don't think you'd be here in person if you were old enough for the king last time. But uh, the queen, the queen, and, uh, or the king. And in some parts of the commonwealth, they add extra things. Uh, the, for example, there's a, a certain college in Oxford that the toast is the king, our visitor, whether he's there or not. He's just viewed as the continual visitor of their college because their college is so wonderful. Of course, he would visit. Well, I, I don't know. That's probably not it. But, you know, sometimes something's added on. It's a, it's a toast of, of loyalty, remembering your monarch every time you gather publicly. Of course, we have uh, toasts in our traditions as well, usually at weddings, right? Uh, but maybe at a birthday party if you're a little more fancy. You might have someone raise a a glass and give a toast, and you might recite things about the people that are are worthy of of knowledge, Uh, something that's great about this individual. Uh, Toasts aren't a huge part of American tradition, but that's because we're so informal. But I'd like to suggest this morning, as we uh, gather together, I'd like to propose Paul's words here 
in 1 Timothy 1.17 as our loyal toast to our King this morning. It's a wonderful set of words. It's given in context of one of Paul's so succinct incarnation narratives. He, he never gives us a paragraph talking about the incarnation, except Philippians 2, of course, which is probably a hymn that he was just copying and pasting in to the letter to the Philippians. So it wasn't his anyway, borrowing it from someone else. But, but the rest of his moments of mentioning the incarnation, it's always just one short, succinct, to the point sentence, like, for example, verse 15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. But what a wonderful statement of the incarnation, is it not? Because right there with that succinct thought, he emphasizes that Jesus came into the world with a purpose to save sinners and, and not just mostly good people who happen to make a mistake here and there. But to the chief of sinners, he came to provide salvation. He also gets a little bit at our pride here, doesn't he? Because he shows us, if we think about who Paul was, what the chief of sinning is. And it's not all those horrible pagan actions which they do out there. Paul says, actually, the chief sinner is that proud, arrogant person who thinks I'm okay with God because I'm so good. And Paul thought he was so good and so not needing God's grace that he even tried to destroy the church of Christ. And yet God even had grace for him. Christ came into the world to save even him who would try to destroy the kingdom of God. And so lest we have any pride, Paul calls us to view the incarnation as God's coming to save even the worst of us. And surely then, if, if you're not the worst sinner, God's grace is sufficient then even for you. This is the incarnation statement he gives and he gives it in context of his own personal life. Oh, lest Paul have any pride, he says, and I was saved. I wasn't even really saved for myself. God saved me so that he could save others too. What a, what a humble moment for Paul, who once was so proud. I was saved. I obtained mercy because Jesus had a plan to Save others through my account. Through these very words that he came into the world to save the chief sinner, me. And it's in that context then that, that Paul has one of those moments where he just kind of breaks off his thought in the middle of it and, and expresses astonishment at who God is. A, a friend of mine refers to this as uh, Paul suffering from spontaneous doxolitis. He can't help himself. He has this, this wonderful disease that just causes him to suddenly burst into worship in the middle of a thought. He gives it many places. This is one of those. Now to the King Eternal! He hadn't even finished his thought yet. But he breaks into this. Oh, oh that we would all catch this from Paul. Spontaneous doxolitis, where we suddenly, in the middle of our lives, just burst into worship and praise. 
Let that be today. Let that not only be today. May we be like Paul and burst into praise. Uh, one, one pastor long ago said that praise of God swallows up the memory of Paul's former life. How great and deep is the glory of God. Right? He, he can't stay on himself thinking of Christ coming to save him causes Paul to retreat from the center stage and turn the spotlight on God and Christ. And that's what we want to do this morning, thinking about this wonderful, this wonderful doxology, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. So consider with me, with God on the center stage this morning, the king who, I'm going to go out of order on the first one, the king who is invisible. The king who is invisible. I was reflecting as I wrote this sermon last week a lot on the children's catechism, which is just such a wonderful thing. And many of you adults would do well to take the children's catechism this year and use it for devotions, uh, along with scripture, not without scripture, but along with your scripture readings, read the children's catechism. It's so succinct and simple with the gospel. And if you need a copy, I should have brought some copies, but I can get one to you at a later point. But as I think of the king who is invisible, I'm drawn to that children's catechism question number nine, the answer to which is, God is a spirit and has not a body as we. God is a spirit and has not a body as we. He is therefore invisible. This is what is taught throughout the entirety of Scripture. The invisible God who is far beyond us and beyond the reach of our feeble gaze. In fact, the letter of 1 Timothy ends with a parallel thought to the one that we're looking at this morning. Paul begins and ends this letter with almost the same doxology thought about God. In chapter 6, verse 16, he speaks of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. And then this is the invisible part, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. So Paul indicates not only because God is a spirit is he invisible, but also where he dwells. How holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He dwells in inapproachable light. Remember, Moses couldn't gaze at him directly or he would die. So God puts him in a cave, covers the cave over, And then just lets this little glimpse of the glory pass by. And even still, Moses' face shines so that the people are terrified with the holiness of God. Our God is invisible in part because he's spirit, but in part also because he's so holy. And he dwells in inapproachable light. Who can approach him? Remember how the the temple in the Old Testament represented this with a massive curtain between the people and the Holy of Holies. And if any but the high priest would enter that place 
and the high priest only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, they would die. So inapproachable, so glorious is this holy God. And yet, we know that we can see him and can approach him through his incarnate Son, who himself declared, I and the Father am one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Yes, he shows us God the Father, because he who is God the Son has appeared in our flesh so that we might behold. We cannot see God, but he always sees us, and in his grace he sent us his Son so that one day we might see him face to face in glory and not be condemned and consumed. It's a marvelous thought, but this is the God who is invisible, and we see him through Emmanuel Christ tabernacling among us in our flesh so that we might see him. And so as we think of all the rest of these these other aspects described here of God who is invisible, we realize that we see them best when we see them in Jesus Christ our Lord, when we gaze at him who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. We see the King, Jesus. Now, uh, we don't have kings, and that's how we avoid bad rulers, right? But I understand that if you have a monarch, there can be a bad king. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God describes what a bad king will look like for his people. The bad king will take instead of give, abuse instead of heal, hoard instead of provide. Sounds pretty bad. But the scriptures also describe a a good king. The good king subdues the aggressor, rules and defends his subjects or her subjects, restrains and conquers their enemies. And the best king would would have a righteous heart and be able to bring that righteous heart in full control of the country. How many rulers have had that ability? Isn't it true that so many of the best monarchs or best presidents in history have had good things in their heart, but the inability to really bring them to fruition for other people, for their, for their nation. They don't have full control. Maybe there's a really good king. One of the best kings of England was a young boy who loved God, but he had so many surrounding him who had control. He really didn't accomplish a lot in his short reign. But we have this king, King Jesus, who is ruling all things for the good of his subjects, Romans 8, 28, who is ruling in peace and justice, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Christ is the best king, and he is now 
ruling at the Father's right hand until He puts all of the enemies under His feet. And then He will continue to reign. That is because He is the King Eternal. Even the best monarchs and best presidents come and go. I'm not saying this was the best monarch ever, but the late Queen Elizabeth II of England has the, the British uh, record. 70 years on the throne. But she's not on the throne anymore. That's over. Someone else is on the throne. I'm not making any political comments here. It's not my country anyway. I'm just saying, even a really good monarch, what, at best, has 70? That's the record. 70 years. It's a pretty good record, but it's over. But here we have the king who is eternal, the God of all ages. This king eternal reigned before the creation of the world. And his reign included speaking, and the world came to be. His reign continued through every, every single era of human history so far. And it will continue as he reigns at his father's right hand throughout the, the present evil age until he returns. Which means that he is ruling all the universe today. Although it is hard for us to see, he is reigning over all things. And he will reign when he brings his last enemy under his feet. He will reign forever and ever. Alleluia. Amen. He will reign. 1 Timothy 1.15 speaks of Jesus coming into the world. Did you notice? It doesn't say he came to be in the world. Jesus already was. As Philippians 2 says, he was reigning already. But he chose to leave his throne and his crown and come down to save sinners. And he it is who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation 1, 17. He shows us the Father who is the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7, 9. Having reconciled us to the Father by the everlasting Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9, 14. Our Holy Trinity reigns and reigns forever. Good news for us. One author writes, to speak of time is to speak of motion, change, process, limited finiteness, and decay. Time is the measure of created reality, creaturely existence. In God, there is no time. He is not subject to time, whereas he does use it for the manifestation of his eternal thoughts to man. He makes time serve the purposes of eternity. God is from everlasting to everlasting. Hence, there is no change in him. The one changeless place to find meaning and stability in the ever-changing world 
is our God. End quote. I want to repeat that last sentence because we need that last sentence. Our world is changing all around us. That's not something new, but it still hurts. It's still confusing. It still is hard. And we need to recall again and again that the one changeless place to find meaning and stability in the ever-changing world is our God. And, And that's what our unsaved friends need to know as well from us. The one stable place to find meaning is this eternal King. He is able to save to the uttermost, says Hebrews 7.25, all who believe. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. The king, the king invisible, the king eternal, the king immortal, says Paul. And immortal in scripture has kind of two trains of thought connected to it. Immortal could be translated imperishable and it could be translated all-powerful. Those are two related thoughts. They go well together, don't they? Imperishable and all-powerful. This king is not just good. He's undefeatably good. This king is not just righteous and holy but he is untarnished and untarnishable in his purity and his righteousness and his goodness and his truth. We, humanity, want things we cannot accomplish, but not God. There is nothing God desires to do that he is unable to accomplish. What a good thought for subjects of a good king. Luke 1.37, remember, worth repeating again and again at Christmas, isn't it? For God, nothing will be impossible. And he, he will never cease to have that ability to do all things. Jeremiah 23, 17 shows us that that actually wasn't a new thought that was given to Mary so long ago. It had already been declared. Jeremiah declares, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. And in Deuteronomy 33, 27, we're told that God's arm never grows tired. And therefore, Isaiah 40, 28, we're told that those who trust in the Lord will not grow tired or weary. Why? Because they're trusting in the one who never grows tired or weary. We're being told that he has the strength you don't have that he after an eternity of existence has strength to give you 
that young men lose on their own. Now, uh, the devil's advocate in us wants to say, well, if God can do all things, does that mean he can do evil? And once again, I love that children's catechism. Number 13 in the children's catechism says something that I don't think any of the other great catechisms written for adults took time to say explicitly. I love 13 of that. It asks, can God do all things? The answer, God can do all his holy will. Yes, he can do all things. He can do all his holy will. To put it a different way, we could say God will never do anything that changes himself, that makes him self-contradictory, that requires him to change his own character or go against what he desires. And he is righteous and holy. He desires righteousness and holiness. In a human, to go against our desires, to go against our character, to change ourselves. It used to be termed, our society doesn't call it this anymore, but this used to be termed insanity. To go against your desires. To go against your character. We, we used to lock people up for that. God isn't insane. We should expect him to do all things that he has power to do, which is everything, only in accord with his own character, that which he loves. So we should not say God can do all things so he might do wicked things and evil things and vile things. If our God was insane, like the gods of Rome or the Greek gods in those myths who are fickle and constantly changing their minds, then we would tremble. We'd have no hope. But our God is consistent with himself and his desires. And we'll expound on that in a moment in a beautiful way, but I hope a beautiful way. Our God can do all things and he does all things well. And then finally, Paul declares the only wise God. Now, some of your translations have the only God. I I don't want to get caught up on this too much, but the the translations that have the only God, they're they're looking at a couple, a handful of old old manuscripts that don't include the word uh, wise. And so their thought goes like this. There are a couple of manuscripts that don't say wise. Then there are many manuscripts that came after that that include wise. And so what must have happened was some, some scribe somewhere was writing along, and then he decided to be um, Eugene Peterson. He decided, instead of a strict translation, to give uh, a, a paraphrase. And the scribe thought, this text sounds a lot like 
Romans 16, 27. And there Paul says all of these same things, but, but there he says God is wise. And so the scribe thought, I'm going to help out. I'm going to add wise in here. Paul must have meant that. And then the, the theory goes that then that one scribe's or, or a couple of scribes maybe decided to do this, and other people were then copying their versions, and over time, all of the remaining versions from that point on include the word wise. So if that's what your Bible says, that's the theory behind that. Now, I, I don't find that as persuasive as a, a different view. I, I don't think there's enough time between the hundreds of manuscripts across different places of the world that all agree with wise, uh, I don't think enough time passed in between. So there's the other view that includes wise that says wise was original, and we have these manuscripts that don't include it, and what happened there was a scribe was going along, and he skipped over a word with his eye. And a couple of scribes maybe did that. Now, let me read... I'm going to butcher the, the pronunciation because it's been years since I actually read Greek out loud. Um, maybe I need to start doing that again. But this is, this is part of the sentence in the Greek. Atharto, ararto, mono, sopho, theo. You see how all those words end with the same ending. You know how easy it would be to... You put the O... And then you think you've done that word, so you go to the next word. I think that's far more likely. In fact, some of you might have caught me. Last night I was reading, and I skipped a whole line, and I caught myself and went back. It's so easy, isn't it? And so here some scribes missed the word wise, I, I believe. It was a typo. And the reason the later manuscripts don't include that is because they didn't follow the typoed manuscript. They caught it. Anyway, those are, those are the two theories. If, if your translation, and if you agree with your translation that it's only God, you don't need to panic when you see the only wise God in someone else's translation. It's not saying there are many gods, and this is the only one that's wise. The only God is attested to in Scripture again and again and again. Deuteronomy 6.4, Isaiah 45.18, 1 Corinthians 8.4-6 are just a few of the examples. And the New Testament makes it clear that there is this only one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are one God without division or confusion. So, that is absolutely true. But here, here Paul is saying the only wise God. And what is he saying? He's not saying there are many gods, only one who is wise. He's saying the only wise God is the source of all wisdom. There's only one source of wisdom in this universe. And it's this King Eternal who is the source of of wisdom. God himself is wise. He's wise in creation. Look at creation. Take time to go look at some of the stuff that's getting shot back to NASA from telescopes way out there. Take time to read about the things that are so small that we don't even see them. 
And we find beauty. Beauty and variety and harmony. And we find that there are so many things about this universe that if just one little tiny thing was off, we wouldn't exist. We would die. We couldn't continue. This is a masterfully, brilliantly, wisely created world. And he's wise in redemption as well. Here's that beauty of of the God who saves us, who is imperishable and he's not going to change and he's not going to act against his own character. Uh Uh-oh. His person, his character is the judge of the universe who is perfectly righteous. And, And we're sinners. So he must bring judgment. He must condemn sin. He must punish it. But, but then his character is also merciful father. And how can those two things possibly go together without contradiction, without him ceasing to be one of those two things? How can this be? Look at the wisdom of God in the cross. There where perfect justice and judgment pay where the wrath of God is poured out for the wickedness of humanity, and yet where also mercy shines forth for those who look to Christ and believe on him. The wisdom of God in redemption. Then there's the wisdom of God in providence. I I was struggling with what word to use there. I'm just going to use providence. And there are a lot of things we could connect to that, but let's just simply think of this one aspect of God's wise providence, what we've already referenced, Romans 8, that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things, even the wicked assaults of Satan. Yes, read Job 1 through 3. Even that, is being used by God for the good of his people. What what about our sin? Yes, even that. Look at our text. Paul is saying that others are going to be saved because he was saved. Why is that? Paul doesn't merit salvation for us. It's because he was such a sinful man that others will look and say, if he can be saved, hope for me. There's hope for me. God's wise creation, his redemption, his providence. You you can build all of those off more and more, but it's not just that he is wise. He's the source of all wisdom in the universe. The source of, we, we can start with what we could call common grace wisdom. That, that is, there are really smart people. And a lot of people who have a a huge IQ that makes me look like I don't even have an IQ. Isn't it true? You read some of these people. They understand. You know, I I understand that there are all these, these numbers and dots and things that make something appear on a screen. And I use that screen every day and I have no idea how my computer works. 
I can listen to my friends talk about programming for a hundred hours, and at the end of it, I, I am just as baffled or more so than before. There are some really smart people out there. There are brilliant people who can do things with math that I, I can't even understand what the equation symbols are, let alone how to figure out what it means or add it up. Or It's not adding it up. I, I do know how to add. But there are really smart people out there, and a lot of them reject the existence of God. And yet their, their smarts come from God. He's the source. When I was a, a, a kid, I remember, and I, I feel like it was right around Christmas, Reader's Digest had a cartoon in it. I wish I could have found the cartoon. I couldn't because I'm going to take a lot longer trying to explain it, and it's going to be a lot less humorous to you. But this cartoon was, uh, was a, a guy in a lab coat claiming that he could make a better human than God could, and God agrees to be in a contest with him. And so the scientist bends down, starts picking up dirt to make a human. And God says, what are you doing? Get your own dirt. Th- that's it, isn't it? it? It's more fun. If you can find it, let me know. I'd love to find that cartoon. But, but, but that's it. He's the source of wisdom, even common grace to sinners who reject him. He's the source of salvific wisdom to make us wise unto salvation in the fear of the Lord. He, he brings us in the fear of the Lord to the foot of the cross to fall down and cry out and there we receive mercy and grace. And he's the source of all true wisdom for daily living uh, or maybe put it a different way for the believer. He's the source of the fear of the Lord applied. The fear of the Lord applied to interaction with your neighbor. He's the one that gives you wisdom to know how. And you seek him when you don't know how. How do I engage with this really frustrating neighbor? I don't mean just next door. How do I engage with this really frustrating sibling? This really frustrating coworker or fellow student? How do I engage with this person? We ask, says James, for wisdom from him for those things, as well as the grace to look at the natural world and, and gaze at God working in it. He is the one, the source of true wisdom for daily living. And whenever scripture says there's this tension between God's wisdom and our wisdom, remember what the scriptures say? Let every man be called a liar. Let God be true. Because he's the source of this wisdom. Well, I'm going to just cut off there. There's so much more we could say from all of this. This, this one is the one to whom all glory and honor belong now and forever and ever. And what can we say but join Paul in saying amen to that? Such a king deserves all glory. Uh, if, if we were all sitting around a table and you all had cups, I would tell you to stand up at this point and raise your glasses with me for the loyal toast to this king. Instead, I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand up and raise your hymnals with me and, and sing the loyal toast 
to our King. And, and I could also encourage you, when we receive God's blessing in the benediction, to respond with Amen. That that would be a loyal toast. This day as we gaze on this King Jesus who shows us God the Father, may we be a people who raise our hearts to worship and adore him.